Well, good morning, Active Church. How are you? It's great to see you. Hey, my name is Mike, if we haven't met yet, and I serve on the team here at Active. And I want to share really quick two things with you. Uh, first, let's talk about Easter weekend for a moment. We're starting Easter weekend on Good Friday at 6.30 in this room. And so we would love for you to come and sing with us, to posture your heart for what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. It's going to be a great Friday night. And so we want to invite you to come and sit with us that night. So Easter's on the 31st, Friday night, 29th, March 29th. We're going to be celebrating and honoring God in this place as we prepare our hearts for Easter. So come and hang with us on Good Friday. And then if you are new around here, next week, I want to personally invite you to something we call First Step with Mike. It's an opportunity for you to hear about the values of Active and learn how to get involved. And maybe you've been thinking about like, what do I do here at Active Church? Well, we'll give you all sorts of opportunities next week. And our belief about you is that you are worth more than you even know, and that God has uniquely wired you for something significant, and we want to help you take that first step next Sunday. So in between our services, just after first hour and just before second hour, at 10.15, across the way in our events room, we would love for you to come and sit with us at first step next week. I want to pray some words over you, and then we'll dive into the story of God together. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we have a space and a place to come and gather. Thank you for being so good to us and caring about us in the way that you do. And I pray in the next few minutes you would inspire us and challenge us and convict us and stir us up. May we be different than how we walked into this place than when we walk out. May we be changed and transformed. May we know what it is that you're inviting us into. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. And together we say amen and amen and amen. I did something recently that I don't recommend but I'm gonna tell you what I did, but don't do it, all right? I did something that my brother calls doom scrolling. You ever, you ever heard of this term before? Here's doom scrolling, here's what it is. When you, as a business leader, you as an organizational leader, or you as a leader, go onto social media, go onto the internet, and you begin to look for what people are saying about you or about the organization you're leading. And the reason why they call it doom scrolling is because inevitably all that it brings is doom, friends. Because you and I both know that on the internet, people are not kind and friendly. And when they can say something behind a screen, oh, they say it, right? And so I decided that for some reason I was going to go doom scrolling. So it was fun for me to do that. And I went doom scrolling about active church. And I got to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised at what I found. For the most part, most people really enjoyed this place. And I think that that shouldn't surprise us because we enjoy this place. And we're grateful for what God is doing in this place and what God is doing in our lives. I summarized a few of the reviews, and I wanted to share those with you today. One of the, one of the, the things that people said regularly was that active was the best. And they mentioned a few names. They mentioned some people that would greet them as they come in. They mentioned a few of our activators at Guest Central. It was really great that they knew them by name. They also said that Active Kids is the best. And they mentioned Pastor Casey and Nanette who lead Active Kids for us. And they were really thankful for how those leaders had loved and served their kids. And there were a few stories about how kids didn't want to leave on Sunday because they enjoyed it so much. 
And then they talked about how the music is the best. And I wouldn't argue with them about that at all because I really love what our team brings to the table each and every week. Pastor James was mentioned and a few of our singers were mentioned and I was grateful to see how they were honored. And then, then most of the people said, all of it is the best. But my favorite review started this way. And it was a specific review that said this, my favorite part of active are the messages. And if you're not familiar with church, this is what we call the message time or the sermon time. Some of you call it the speech time or the lecture time, right? Like this is what we call that time right now. And so I was really excited because somebody had noticed what I get to do each and every week. And for the most part, I'm the one that brings the message. So when people talk about this time, I, I got really excited. And I noticed that they mentioned the names of other people. So I was really excited about that. And I was grateful for the affirmation. And then I kept reading the review. And it said they were grateful for the message time. And then it said this, that Pastor Mark delivers. <laughs> And so, so two, two things, two things. I'm so grateful for Pastor Mark, whoever he is. And I'm glad that he's put in the time to bring God's word to us. And second thing, if you're not laughing and you're wondering why, let me just bring some clarity to you. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Mike, all right? Mike is my name, not Mark. You were close, but not close enough, all right? Mike is my name. And so after today, I expect a bunch of reviews about Pastor Mike, okay? Good or bad, I don't care. But give me a review and get my name right, please, right? Have you, have you ever been called the wrong name? Somebody comes up and they say hi to you and, and, and you're like, are they, are they talking to me? Or have you ever been introduced with the wrong name? And then you have this tension that happens inside of you, right? The tension is this, do I, do I correct them gently and maybe cause some embarrassment or do I just live the rest of my life as Pastor Mark, right? Like, I guess that's who I'm gonna be. And I think for the most part, most of us would make sure that the person knows our name, make sure that the person knows that, that, that our name is Mike and not Mark, right? And the reason why we do that is because we know who we are. We know who we are. And we know who we are because someone told us that. Someone who loves us, cared for us, perhaps even raised us, gave us our identity. They gave us our name. And so for the rest of my life, I am Mike Frisch because that's who my parents named me. They gave me my identity. And I know that I'm more than just a name. And I know that you're more than just a name, but it's our name that initially tells us who we are. And the reason why we correct it when somebody comes along and calls us the wrong name is because we're convinced that that's not who we are. We know who we are because someone in authority over us who loves us and cares about us, they told us who we are. And I wanna talk about that today. But first, we are in week two of a series called Essentials. And we're wrestling with this question. What must a person believe in order to faithfully follow Jesus? Now, what we talk about at Active often is what we do. And it's the doing that matters. That's important. 
But when we talk about what we do, sometimes we can skip over what we believe and what we believe matters, and here's why. Because what you believe will show up in what you do. What you hold in your heart will connect itself to your hands. And so if you value each person as if they were created in the image of God because they are, then that will come out in what you say and in what you do. But if you don't, then that will come out in what you say and in what you do. And what I've noticed in gatherings like this and what I've noticed being a church person for a really long time, and perhaps maybe you've noticed this too as a church person or maybe new to church, it may be one of the reasons why you've stayed away from church, is often it feels like what isn't essential is made essential. Often it feels like what is personal, cultural, or even political becomes the most important thing. And then because people who have microphones and stand on stages on a Sunday are are really gifted in how they communicate, what they do is tie scripture to the things that are personal, that are cultural or political, and then it sounds biblical, and then they tell you that it's essential. So if you disagree with it because you've compared it to the person and work of Jesus, they might question if you're even a Christian. They might question why you're even in this gathering. And for some, we've questioned it, and it has caused us to walk away from gatherings like this. And for some, it's caused us to walk away from Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus, and then we see how Christians behave, or what Christians are communicating as the most important thing, we go, gosh, that just doesn't look like Jesus. And I don't want to be somebody that's convinced of something personal, cultural, or political. I want to be convinced of what's essential to the Jesus that I'm choosing to follow and the Jesus that you're choosing to follow. Which is why last week we began this conversation asking the question, so what's essential to Jesus? And the first thing that we discovered is that the words of his heavenly father were essential to him. That he honored those words. That he fulfilled those words. That everything that we read in the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament is as we know it, was fulfilled in Jesus. So some of the things that we don't quite understand, some of the things that seem a bit strange, some of the things that seem a bit funky, that's a very spiritual word for you to use this this morning, that seem a bit strange. Jesus says, I fulfilled all of that. I came to fulfill it, not get rid of it. I came to clarify it, not to destroy it. He fulfilled it. And we know that the law of God is good because of how Jesus lived, because Jesus lived to give his life for you so that you may have life. He chose to love us while we were still in our brokenness and in our sin. He chose to be for us when he could have stood against us. And so Jesus, Jesus prioritized the words of his heavenly father, the words of your heavenly father, the words of my heavenly father. He prioritized those words when he came to live on earth as fully God, but also fully human. And because that's true, What we talk about today becomes very important because today the question that we want to wrestle with is this. What did Jesus believe about himself? Like, what did Jesus think about himself? What did Jesus say about Jesus? What was essential to Jesus about Jesus? And I want you to know, and this might sound a bit dramatic, and I have a reputation of being a bit dramatic, so bear with me for just a moment. But I want you to know that what we're about to talk about today is the most important thing that you could believe. Everything after this is just detail. It's important detail. 
But what we talk about today is the most important thing. Everything flows from this, and if you get this right, you will find yourself following Jesus faithfully and intentionally with integrity. Because Jesus knows who he is, and we wanna hear from Jesus about who he is. I appreciate the opinions on Jesus, I appreciate the perspectives on Jesus, but if I want to find out who he is, I'm going to Jesus to find out who he is. And that's what I want us to do today, because what we learn today will be the essential view of Jesus. And in order to do that, I want to take you back to AD 30, first century. And in AD 30, there was no church, there was no the Bible. There was no theology or doctrine. All that they had in that time were the law and the prophets. They had the Torah. They had the priesthood. They had the temple. And they had Roman occupation. They were in charge. And in the middle of all of this is this rabbi from Nazareth. Nazareth was not a very highly respected town. But here's this rabbi with, from Nazareth with followers, with people that were drawn to him. And he was confronting things that the religious establishment and the religious elite did not like or appreciate because it was undermining their authority. It was undermining their work because they had a perspective of God that was very different than what Jesus talked about. And about two and a half years into the ministry of Jesus, and when we say ministry of Jesus, what we mean by that is that he is doing what he was called to do. He was doing what he came to do on earth. And he was turning water into wine, and he was healing the blind and helping the lame walk, and it was a beautiful, beautiful moment, teaching us about God. And about two and a half years into his ministry, Jesus and his first century followers find themselves about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. They're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it has two names for two reasons. First, Herod the Great, who was in charge of that region during the time and life of Jesus. Herod the Great named it after his son, Philip. And then when Philip took over for Herod the Great, Philip wanted to honor the Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, so he named it after the Caesar. So this name got kind of smashed together as Caesarea Philippi. And perhaps that's what, that's what started this conversation that we're about to read. A conversation that if you have a Bible with you or you have access to the Bible app, I want to invite you to not just hear it, but I want to invite you to see it. And so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. This is a letter written by somebody who knew Jesus, was with Jesus for this three-year period. His name was Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector who Jesus walks by his tax collector booth and says, hey, come and follow me. And Matthew leaves everything to follow Jesus because this is the one that they've been waiting for. And he was intrigued by him and drawn in by him. And so Matthew decides to write down everything that he sees and everything that he hears so that you would know that this isn't us just having blind faith, that our faith is actually in what took place. It's factual and historical that Jesus was a real person who really lived and really died and his tomb was really empty. And so Matthew tells us this story. And if you don't have a Bible app or you don't have access to the Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen for you as well. It's a story that for some of you, you probably are really familiar with if you've been a church person for a while. For some of you, maybe you're not familiar with it, but could I invite you just to sit in the story for a moment? 
Could I invite you to just walk in and look around? And that's one of the most important things that we could do with the scriptures, with the documents and letters that we call the scriptures, is that the first thing we can do is just walk in and take a look around at what's happening. And when you do that, you start to notice some really incredible things that are done, but in this particular story, some really incredible things that are said. So in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now that title, Son of Man, is a really important title. And it's first mentioned in the document that Daniel writes in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And it's a title that the average human would never give to themselves. Because the title was always associated with God, with deity. Because the title meant this, that this person who holds this title is going to be somebody that has the authority to judge all of the nations. Because they are perfect and they're going to judge the imperfect nations. They have a posture of righteousness and the nations do not. And so they have that authority because they have not done what everybody else has done. They have lived differently. They've done things differently. So you wouldn't give that title to yourself, nor would I give that title to myself. But when Jesus asks the question, hey, what are people saying about me? He goes doom scrolling. He says, what are people saying about me? Jesus says, what are they saying about the son of man? Which would immediately have caught the attention of those that were hanging out with him. And it could have been incredibly appropriate because they were like, oh yeah, of course we know who you are. And that title fits. Or it could have been incredibly unsettling because you just used a really powerful title that Daniel used to describe how God works in our lives. But Jesus is, is curious. Hey, what are, what are people saying about me? For us in, in this modern culture, perhaps the, the question that we would ask would, or be asked at least, would be this. Who, who do people think Jesus is? Hey, I'd love to know what is stirring in their minds. And so then one of the disciples speaks up and says, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're, you are your cousin. At this point, John the Baptist had been killed by King Herod. He was not alive. And so they were like, well, some people think that you're like John the Baptist just reincarnated. The fascinating thing about that is they didn't believe in the Jewish culture. They didn't believe in reincarnation. It wasn't even a part of their rhythm of life. But there are some people that are like, I guess this is who you are. Do you see how opinion can almost become essential? Others are saying that you are Elijah, which was a prophet, a very famous prophet in the Hebrew culture. And then others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You're somebody special. You're somebody that is, has come to tell us about God. That was really what they're communicating here. But then Jesus gets to the root of the conversation. And in verse 15, he says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? What about, what's, what's your thoughts? What are your opinions? What is, what is your understanding? And then Peter, who knew Jesus probably the best out of all of the group, was the oldest of the group. Peter answers and he says, you are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the savior we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Now, if Jesus was just an average human, a regular human like me or like you, perhaps we would expect his response to be this. Peter, calm down. Don't get so carried away. But seriously, who do you say that I am? But Jesus is not just some average guy. And we'll talk about what he says in response to Peter's response in just a minute. But could we just pause for a moment? Could we pause and consider what, what Peter has said to Jesus in this moment in light of his question? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Jesus, you are God's final king. It's why you are the son, not a son. It's why you are the Messiah, not a Messiah. It's why you are God in the flesh. You are God in a bod. You are here with us. You are all of God, fully God, in a human body, present with us. You decided to come. You decided to be with us. We know who you are. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You're the one that God has promised. You're the one that we've been counting down the days would show up. We know who you are. You're the king. You're our king. You're the king of everyone. You're the one that is for us. You are the savior. You are the Lord. You are God. And maybe perhaps Peter looked around and went, well, nobody else spoke up. So fellas, are you impressed, right? I got the right answer. But could we just take a moment? And regardless of where you find yourself in your faith perspective, maybe a long-time follower of Jesus, or maybe a first-time follower of Jesus, or maybe you're not even following Jesus, you are just intrigued by Jesus, or maybe you showed up today because the person that invited you was really good-looking, and you're like, sure, I'll go to church. I don't know what this is about, but I'm in. Maybe they promised you lunch. Wherever you find yourself, right? Let me ask you a question. What if Peter's right? What if this is who Jesus is? Some of you might go, well, well, he is right. Pause for just a moment. Remember, we're just looking around. What if Peter's right? And what if Jesus is exactly who Peter said that he is? Shouldn't that cause us to pause? Shouldn't it cause us to consider? Shouldn't it cause us to, to look to Jesus and to listen to Jesus? If he's God, shouldn't we bow down? If he is who Peter says that he is, shouldn't we worship him? Shouldn't we submit to him? Surrender to him? Obey him? Follow him? I mean, if this is true and he's God's final king, then this is what it means. He represents God to us, which means that everything Jesus says to us is as if God is talking right to us. Oh, I would love to hear from God. You have. I would love for God to speak to me. He is. This is what Peter is announcing in that moment. And what if he's right? If he's right, there's only one appropriate response. We should follow. If this is true, and Jesus isn't just a reference point. Oh yeah, I, I, I love Jesus. I'm a, I'm a Christian. 
and that's a part of who I am. When you choose to follow Jesus, Jesus isn't a part of who you are. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. And everything that I say and do is done to honor Him and to bring glory to Him, to celebrate Him. It's why I got to get my relationship with you right. It's why I got to be careful and thoughtful with my words when I speak to you. Because if I am a follower of Jesus and I believe that Jesus can transform lives and he can transform my life, then my life better be transformed in what I say and in what I do. If this is true, I'm gonna follow. If this is true, Jesus isn't a reference point. If this is true, he's not a way to get to heaven. If this is true, Jesus isn't inviting you into a religion. If this is true, then you and I, we've got some adjusting to do, don't we? If this is true, Jesus is the center of everything. And this, this moment is amazing. And what I love about the response that Jesus gives to Peter is that Jesus doesn't dumb it down. Jesus doesn't dismiss it. Jesus doesn't even discredit it. Jesus responds this way in verse 17. He says, blessed, blessed are you. Now we, we use, Christian people specifically use the word blessed pretty often. Here's, here's what that word means according to what we have discovered in the scriptures. It means that God is present here. So when you use the word blessed, process what you're saying is blessed. Because what the scriptures teach us is that word means literally that God is present in this. God is present in your story. God is at work and has poured favor over this. So when we find the, the parking spot that opened up and we're like, oh, we're blessed, be careful when you use that word, right? Like, but when you find someone who has made a decision to reconcile instead of choosing revenge, oh, that's blessed because God is in that. And so Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, he, he, his, his, his Greek name is, is Peter. His Hebrew name is, is Simon. Jesus gives him a new name when he meets him, but you can tell how heavy and how powerful this moment is. And this, friends, is why we gotta walk into the scriptures and just look around because Jesus, Jesus gets serious in this moment. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You ever had your mama call you when you're in trouble? When my mom called me, it wasn't Mike and it wasn't Mikey. You know what I heard across the, the house? Michael Paul! And I knew, sit up straight and walk out and apologize immediately because something happened, right? This moment, Peter's not in trouble, but Jesus is just grabbing his attention. He's like, oh, you're blessed, bro. Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Simon, you're smart, but you're not that smart. Peter, you're brilliant, but you're not that brilliant. You didn't create this. This isn't your opinion. This isn't what is subjectively true to you. This is what's objectively true for everybody. This isn't your truth. This is what is true. Are you with me? That's what Jesus is saying to Peter here. He's saying that my heavenly father told you this, showed you this, communicated this to you. 
And maybe what Jesus is referencing is an actual moment that Matthew records early on in his letter. Jesus gets baptized. And I know that many of you have been baptized and many of you will be baptized on Easter Sunday. And, and the reason why we get baptized is because we are, are thankful for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We get baptized because we know that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. We've missed the mark, and we need someone to help redirect us and reorient us. So then the question is, why did, why did Jesus get baptized? Jesus got baptized to submit to the will of his heavenly Father, to come and do what God Almighty wanted him to do. That's why he got baptized, not because he was a sinner, because the scriptures are clear that he was without sin. It's why he could be the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. But Jesus got baptized to submit to his heavenly father. I will do what it is that you have sent me to do. And then as he gets baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and comes up out of the water, Matthew records this moment. A voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Do you remember when we first started and we talked about how we know who we are? Someone who loves us, has authority over us, told us? In this moment, our Heavenly Father said, pay attention to my son, because that is who he is. And maybe this is where everybody's eyes were open for the very first time, that this isn't some guy, some rabbi, some dude, but that this is God in the flesh here for you and here for me. And, and Jesus says this to Peter. Jesus says, Peter, you're right. You're in the presence of God's final king. You're in the presence of God's unique son. And I'm convinced that in that moment, they believed Jesus. Not believed in, they just believed. They were like, I think he's right. And I trust he's right. But then not too long after this, they unbelieved. Like maybe some of you have. And you want to know why they unbelieved? Because they all had a God box. You know what I'm talking about? The, the box that you have created that has been influenced by the people around you, how you were raised, how you were loved, the experiences you've had, your church experience, your faith experience. We all have a God box. You have a God box. Some of our God boxes are, are, are about this big, and some of our God boxes are about this big, and some of our God boxes might be bigger than that, but we all have a God box. And for these first century followers of Jesus, they had a God box, and in that God box was this conviction, that God always wins. And so when Jesus died on a cross, they unbelieved because that's not a win. And isn't it true that death is always experienced as a loss? And so when that moment happened, they went, this must not be who he said he was. And so they unbelieved. And yet, when we read the scriptures, the thing that you hold in your hand, whether it's the document, the pages that you have, the Bible in your hand, or even on your phone, you have the version or Bible app. When we read those stories, you know who those stories are written by? The same people who had a God box and unbelieved. And the question we have to wrestle with is, okay, so then what changed for them? You know what changed for them? An event changed them. 
an event called the resurrection changed them because they saw Jesus die and left him. And then three days later, were eating breakfast with Jesus by the Sea of Galilee and wondering how they got here. And they realized that he had predicted his death and resurrection, and then he actually did it. And what it taught them was that their God box was too small. Their God box was misinformed. Their God box was inaccurate. And what they, what they found was that God didn't fit into their personal perspective. And that when they talk about God, it's not what they personally believe to be true. What they found is that it was true whether they believed it or not. They had a more essential and appropriate view of Jesus after he died and resurrected. In fact, there's a declaration that unites all churches, that unites all gatherings, whether they're Lutherans or Presbyterians or Catholics or non-denominational like we are. There is one statement that we have all agreed upon, and it's miraculous that we even agree upon anything because we're Christians, but we are in desperate need of Jesus, right? And so it's miraculous that we agree on anything, but there's one thing throughout history since the time of Jesus and the time of the church that we've all agreed upon one particular thing, and this is the declaration, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. No negotiation. No, well, personally, I think, mm -mm, you can have an opinion. But your opinion is wrong if Jesus is seen as anything other than the Christ, the Son of the living God. I can have an opinion. He's, he's a really good rabbi. Yeah, you're right. He's also the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was a really good man who taught some really good things. You're right. He's also the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this isn't just because the Bible tells us that. This is because history teaches that. His tomb is empty. And you can go and see it. And that's what changes everything for us. The essential view of Jesus is this. Everything gets organized around this. Everything gets prioritized around this. It's why, friends, I wake up every single morning and I read the scriptures intentionally and with discipline, even though it's difficult and life gets busy, because I want to hear from God, because the men and women who knew God wrote about Jesus, and I want to know about Jesus, because that's who I'm following. And so I'll read the scriptures to discover who he is and what he's done. I'll read the scriptures to learn about how I'm forgiven, even though I'm a knucklehead. I'll read the scriptures to discover how I'm set free, even though I don't deserve freedom. I'll read the scriptures about how God chose me while I was still in my sin, and he died for me and loved me, and the same is true for you. I want to be reminded of that every single day, because I'm a terrible God to myself, and I'm a terrible God to the people around me, because I'm selfish, and I'm prideful, and I have an ego, but the one that I follow, Jesus Christ, is the antithesis of who I am. He is the epitome of what I want to be. And this is why I choose to read him and follow him and honor him. And I'm convinced it's why you do too. This is who he is. We're not trusting in some dude. 
We're giving our lives, our belief, our trust in God. And, and quite honestly, where else should I go? Where else would you go? I know that there's a lot of options. There's books and theologies and philosophies. And the truth is, is that we have the opportunity, and we have the privilege, and we have the right to choose whatever we want. It's your life. You can do whatever you want. But the God who gave you life chose to give of his life so that you may have real life. And then he invites you to consider him. Whoo, come on. Not forced, not threatened, not demanded, not commanded, invited. If you're antagonistic towards Jesus, knock it off because he is not antagonistic towards you. His people might be, and that might be one of the reasons why you're very aggressive towards faith. But I want you to hear me and hear me very clearly. Jesus did all of this for you because he loves you and then invites you to consider him. This is the Christ, the son of the living God. So what did Jesus believe about himself? What was essential to Jesus about himself? It's this, that Jesus believed that he is God's son and our king. And you're invited to believe that as well. And if you're gonna follow Jesus, this is where it starts. And you can trust Jesus because Jesus, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus is who he announced he is. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's Son. He's our King. He's the Anointed One. He's our Savior. And you can trust Him. In fact, one of the best responses we could have to this reality is maybe summarized best in this statement. I believe in who Jesus claimed to be. God's son and our king. I believe in who Jesus claimed to be. God's son and our king. In fact, could, could I invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus or if you wanna begin to follow Jesus, could I invite you on the count of three to say this out loud with me? And before we do that, can I just speak to those that are maybe struggling, not sure about Jesus? You might think to yourself, ha ha, Mike, you're gonna get me, right? You're gonna get me. You're gonna get me to say it out loud and then I'm in. That's not how it works. It's not about you just saying something and then, and then now you're a follower. It's about you making a decision deep within your heart. It's you making a decision and then confessing that outside of your mouth. So if this isn't you and you're not ready for this, it's okay to not say this at all out loud. But for those of you that are wanting to follow Jesus or continuing to follow Jesus on the count of three, could we say this phrase out loud together? Ready? One, two, three. I believe in who Jesus claimed to be, God's son and our king. And it's not my opinion and it's not my perspective. This is true whether I agree with it or not. And because it's true, I'm gonna trust him. 
I'm gonna trust him in those moments where I failed because his forgiveness is so sweet. I'm gonna trust him in those moments when I haven't been faithful because his freedom is a gift. I'm gonna trust him when I find myself going, why did I do that again? Because God shows up again and again and again. You can trust him. Life may be really hard, you can trust him. Life may be really difficult, you can trust him. And your trust in him doesn't mean that everything gets solved. In fact, one of the things that we discover is that Jesus suffered and died. And so if we being really good people have to suffer, the best person that we could ever know suffered and died. And so we're in good company, friends. And maybe perhaps you're suffering, hear me. Maybe perhaps you're suffering. It happened so that your eyes would be open to a God who's inviting you into real life. And it would have been great if you didn't have all that, but maybe it's those, all of that that you went through, maybe it's that that brings you here. You can trust him. You can trust him when it's good and you should, and you can trust him when it's not so good. Like, like one woman who tragically lost her husband and child in a drowning accident. And she was a follower of Jesus and so was he. And there was a situation that escalated and the kid was struggling and the dad went in to rescue the kid and the mom watched this situation in front of her and she watched both of them lose their life in front of her. And it would have been easy for her to walk away. It would have been easy for her to say that this isn't true. It would have been easy for her to say, God isn't real. But you know what she did? She did the thing that I think we all wanna do in tragedy. She turned to almighty God and placed her trust in him. And we know this as a fact because in the late 1800s, she wrote a song that the church has been singing for over 200 years. After losing her husband, after losing her child, she penned these words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know thus saith the Lord. And she wasn't done. Then she writes, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. And I love this last line. Oh, for the grace to trust him more. Instead of praying some words over you today as we finish, our team is gonna sing some words over you today. The words that I just shared with you that were written by this woman. And then as they sing over you, I just want you to listen and, and hear. 
I know some of you fight the urge to sing because then in just a moment, as we sing, Josh will invite you to stand and then we'll sing these words out loud together. So active, if you would, just let these words wash over you. Let the team sing over you. And then they're gonna invite you to sing. And when we sing, whether you know these words well or not, I wanna invite you to do your best to sing these words back to Almighty God. Team, take it away.